Uh, my name's Chael, by the way, and I'm one of the leaders here, and so thankful to be able to, to share with you all tonight and, uh, and, and share a little bit about, um, about God's Word. Uh, this is what we do every week. We love Jesus, and we try to come together, celebrate who He is, celebrate what He's done in our lives, and then kind of learn what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus and then be sent back out into the world. Uh, so Sunday is kind of like the beginning of our week uh, where we're, we're being, being prepared to be sent out into the normal everyday life. So you are the church this is not a church. This is a building that we come to, and this is the place where we prepare our hearts to go and be the people of God out there in the world. And so, um, so that's, that's what we do here uh, every week. So we have been uh, in, a, in a series for a little while on the book of Nehemiah, which is uh, in the Old Testament of, uh, in the Bible. Uh, and this is a book where um, the people of God have been in a, a expelled from their homeland for a long period of time, uh, and, and they haven't been able to, to live uh, in their place where they were promised that they would be able to live. And then uh, they're living in this, in this foreign place, and the foreign king lets them go back to their homeland to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, and then to begin to rebuild the city in Jerusalem, to rebuild the walls of the city. And so what we've been looking at as we've been walking through this book is, uh, what does this say to us as a church right now, as we're beginning to kind of look at how do we rebuild after all of the COVID things and all of that, trying to see, okay, God, who are we? What have you called us to do? What sort of lessons can we learn from this book? And so that's just what we've been walking through. And today we're going to enter the story in Nehemiah chapter 7, uh, and we're going we're gonna to read a chunk, but not, it's not terribly long. So if you are able, would you please stand, and I'm going to read... God's word here. Before I do, I'm going to give you the punchline of the message. The punchline of the message, where this whole thing is going, is let's throw more parties. Let's throw more parties. Here's where this is going, all right? Nehemiah chapter 8. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. Pay attention to that, in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring forward the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So that's the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis all the way through. And, and so, so he began to read this. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women who were all able to understand. And he read it aloud from daybreak until noon. Man, that's a long time to read. Uh, and he, as he faced the square and before the water gate in the presence of men, women, and others who can understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him, on the right, stood a bunch of names I can't pronounce. <laughs> Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, amen, amen, and then they bowed down and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, and a bunch of other names I can't pronounce, instructed the people of the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving the meaning so that people understood what was being read. And then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites were instructing the people, saying to them, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. 
Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. The Levites calmed all the people. Be still, for this day is a holy day. Do not grieve. And then all the people went away to eat and to drink and to send portions of food to celebrate with great joy because now they understood the words that had been made known to them. Lord, I pray that today that the things that I'm about to say would just be from your heart to ours. And not my own words and not my own thoughts, God. I, I don't care about any of that, Lord. But what it is that you want to say that would help us to come alive to the things that are in your heart for us. I pray, Spirit of God, that you would move in this room in a way that awakens us to your destiny for us. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, I told you, this is going to be fun. We're going to throw more parties. At the beginning of 2020... Uh, before COVID, anyone had knew, known anything about COVID in the U.S. and that this was a thing, uh, we had had a 24-hour prayer gathering at our office. We had spent some time just kind of praying over the course of 24 hours. We have like a little sign-up sheet. We've done this. We're going to do this again sometime here in the near future. And at the end of that time, we were kind of like just kind of listening and waiting and saying, God, what, what is it that you're saying to us as a church? And there were a few of us left in the room, and all of a sudden there came this like strong sense that God was saying this. You don't have a problem to solve, you have a party to throw. You don't have a problem to solve, you have a party to throw. And I was like, that sounds fun. And then the whole world shut down for two years. And I was like, God, are you sure? This doesn't seem very, like, very partying. Like, and this seems like really hard work. And now we can't meet together and all these kinds of things. But, but the, I was never able to shake this word that it felt like God was speaking. speaking. And actually, it helped to kind of sustain me uh, as, as trying to like lead through all of this kind of stuff. And, uh, and it, it was, and I just kept thinking like, God, no, you have something that you want us to celebrate here. Like, and, but then I was reminded that, I don't know if you've ever thrown a party. Parties are a lot of hard work. You ever hosted a party? Like we just had this like picnic for our friends at Big Table. It was a lot of work, a lot of planning, a lot of moving parts. It's like hard work. So it doesn't necessarily mean that it's always fun all the time. Parties are hard, but man, it's so much fun when you're working for something like that, right? Now we live in a world of two different kinds of extremes, okay? So these aren't the only postures that people have, but this is some of the postures. So on one hand, we live in a world full of cynicism and pessimism, like of like, ah, the world is terrible and it's awful. And there's nothing really to celebrate. And it's just a bad, it's a bad place. And then like, and then people even can project that onto God. God must not, there must not be a God or if there is a God, he's not good because look at how bad the world is. And, and so the, people have the cynical kind of posture uh, towards the world and, are, and like really can't celebrate. They like have this the inability to celebrate. The cynicism keeps them from seeing the good in life, from seeing the good in God. So that's one side. The other side, I think that there's a posture that society and people take is one of escapism, which isn't necessarily saying, oh, the world is so bad, we can't celebrate, we can't enjoy life. It's the other side. It's like, no, I think life is kind of like we should just party all the time. And we, and we should just escape reality because life is hard and life is difficult. And so now we're living for the weekend. We're living for the next party. We're living to escape the reality that we have. It's a denial of reality. And there's these kind of two extremes and there's everything uh, in between there. And I'll say just personally, I've experienced both of those extremes in my life. As a, and, and, and actually within a short period of time, in my college days, I was a kid who I grew up in church. 
uh, and I went to this Christian college, and I had high expectations about what that was going to mean for my life and the kind of friendships I would have and the experiences I had. And my Christian college experience was not good. I experienced leaders who did some really terrible things to people. My, I, I myself was like really bad mouth and, and treated really poorly by people who I really trusted. I kept seeing things like these great like shows and displays of emotion, but then no change in people's lives. And so I grew more and more cynical. As a matter of fact, I can remember being, I know the exact place I was at, and we had this large chapel building, and I was sitting in the back, uh, towards the back, in the middle of the balcony, like just kind of like it was a place I could overlook. I'm now even talking about it, I realized the judgmental thing that was in my heart. But I sat there with such a cynical attitude, and it was like I could feel my heart being dark. I just feel the darkness of my cynicism of looking down on all of this and saying, yeah, this is garbage. Like, I don't, I don't know what I think about this anymore. I went through a really, really dark phase of like being like, there's nothing really good in this. There's nothing really good in life. Then I jumped really quickly, not too long, into the other side of that, where it was like, well, if that's the case and like life is hard and it's difficult, then why not just party? Why not just do what I want to do? If, if, if it's either that feeling, well, I don't want to have that feeling. And, and I had been a goody two-shoes for like the best I could for my whole entire life. I tried to be the right person. So now I was like, throw all that out of the window. I'm going to do what I want to do. And I jumped into this total kind of lifestyle. But those kind of extremes are not what we were designed to live in. That's not how God has designed us. We were designed to be people of joyful, defiant celebration. Not in denial of reality, but in acknowledgement of a greater reality. Let me say it again. Not in denial of reality, but in acknowledgement of a greater reality. I'll un- unpack that here in just a minute. In our, in our text here, so Nehemiah and his countrymen, all of his people, they've been working really hard for seven months. And now they're trying to return back to normal life. They're trying to tend to their fields. We talked about this, this a little bit last week. They're trying to put things back together. They're settling into normal, normal life here after seven months of hard work. And so things are kind of settling back into normal. Now, a, a couple of things could have happened. We don't really know, like, what was the thing that sparked the reading of this. But one thing that could have happened is maybe they began to start taking for granted all the amazing things that God had done to get them to this place. If you remember, this is a miraculous story. This, this wall being rebuilt should not have happened. This, like, this was an amazing... The king who was over, over the people should not have allowed Nehemiah and the people to go back. Like, this was an amazing thing. And they did it in record time. And they did it while they were under attack by their enemies. This is, like, an amazing thing. But maybe the people had started to forget that this was an amazing thing. Or maybe the people... I don't know for sure, but maybe the people started to anticipate... Um, it's been a little while and things are going pretty good. I bet the other shoe's about to drop soon and things are going to go bad again. Anyone ever struggle with that? Like you're kind of like, it's in the calm. You're like, the storm's coming. I know it is. Prepare yourself for something bad, right? Like, and, and, and maybe that's what they were doing. I really don't know. We don't know for sure. But in any case, for whatever reason, now is the occasion to get out. It says book, but it would have been a scroll, and read from the first five books of the Old Testament, and to read God's law and their people. Now, this is really important. I said pay attention to where this happened. This happened in the city center. This did not happen in the temple. So you would expect for God's word to be read in the temple and for this to be like a a planned religious ceremony. 
But that's actually not what was happening. In this day, what would happen is people would bring out these law codes or covenants that they would make in these agreements, and they would bring them out into the middle of the city for all the people to hear, not just the super religious people who are worshiping in the temple. So this was just a normal, everyday thing of society, but what happens is, as they're reading the word of God, as they're reading the promises of God, worship begins to erupt in the middle of a city. I don't know why, that just gets me. Like, because I think that we think of worship as something being contained to a room like this. That's not God's heart. The, the picture that we have that what God wants to ultimately do is that worship fills every corner of all of creation. Not just when we gather in here and these guys are playing awesome music. Which, by the way, aren't they awesome? I mean, so, so good. Like, we're so blessed. I'm so thankful for that. But we're supposed to be doing this in all arenas of life. And we see this right here for everyday life, not just for super religious people in a building. Now, for us, when we think about reading the law, I don't know about you, but that doesn't inspire joy or joyful thoughts. If you're talking about the first five books, this is usually the part of the Bible that people avoid. They're like, I'm good with like the first three chapters of Genesis, and then I skip until Psalms, right? There's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff in there. It weirds us out because we don't really understand it, and like, or maybe we're bored. Like, you start getting into Leviticus, and the priest is wearing this, and this is happening. Like, I mean, let's just be honest. Like, it, it's just a little bit hard for us to wrap around. So when I hear law being read and that producing joy, uh, man, that's probably not the immediate association. But for these people, they understood that for the first time in a long time, they were being reminded of who God was and who they were. They were being reminded of the character of God. They were being reminded of the promises of God. They were being reminded of all the things that God had done to set them free going right back to the very beginning. And now they're living in the reality of God's promises. Going all the way back to the very beginning, God told Abraham, like, I'm going to send you to a place and you're going to enjoy incredible blessing there. And now, all the way through the history of God's people, they're there. Now they're in the place that God promised. And so this should have evoked like a sense of joy. The most appropriate response in the world was to worship. And so they bow down and they raise their hands and they repent. And we're going to talk about repentance next week and how important that is. And that's all good and that's all biblical. Those are all things that are appropriate to do when we hear God's word. But Nehemiah and the priests are like, uh, hold up in a minute. That's not what we're doing. We're not like being sad today. We're not grieving today. This is a day of celebration. This is a holy day. We're not going to weep and we're not going to mourn, but this is a holy day. We're going to rejoice. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think about holiness, most often I associate that with like weeping and mourning. Anyone else? Like I grew up in, in, in the church world, a tradition called the holiness tradition. And in that tradition, it was like the more sad and sorrowful you were, the more holy you were. Like the people who are really holy were the people who looked like they were going to a funeral at all times. Like I, we, they were, I, can, I can have very distinct like pictures in my mind of people who I thought of as holy and they just always had like sour looks on their face, right? I mean, and it's okay because like that's, that is a thing that God does and we'll talk about that. But in a minute, like, uh, but like, our friend Chad, who was here in a few weeks ago, basically says this all the time, that like serious is, seriousness is not a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Like seriousness does not equal more holy. 
Nehemiah, actually, and Ezra, when they read the law and the people start reacting this way, they flip this whole thing upside down. And actually, what we, what we learn here is that God's holiness awakens celebration and not just evokes seriousness. God's holiness is meant to awaken a celebration in us and not just cause us to be serious. Don't get me wrong. The Bible is full of moments where people are undone when they realize who God is. You can think of the story of Isaiah when he, when he has this great revelation of who God is. He, like, he can't talk. You know, there's often times where people encounter God throughout the Bible and they fall down because, like, it's just too intense. Like, so that's a, totally a, a part of the story of God. But in this specific moment, God's holiness demands a celebration. Why is that the case? Well, because the law that they would have been reading would have revealed the character and the acts and the promises of God. They were literally living in the thing that God had promised them. This is not a time to be sad. This is a time to rejoice. God has fulfilled his promises to his people. They're living in the promise. So why are you sad? It's actually, it says, I think it's four times in this chapter that what they read was they were able to understand, that they were able to make it clear so that they could clearly understand what the, what the significance of this was. What were they able to understand? What was made clear? Who God is and who they are. Who, who God is and who they are. It's not a time to weep or cry. It's a time to rejoice. Because when we look at who God is and all that God has done, and we have a, a, a revelation of who he is, actually it should change something in us. And I actually feel like there's a real principle here that true revelation of who God is should result in rejoicing. True revelation of who God is should result in rejoicing. I can tell you with absolute certainty that people who don't have joy in their life, uh, there's something about God yet that they don't fully understand. Because as we're going to see in just a second, God is a joyful God. See, why, when you discover who God is and what God has done and what he is doing, celebration and rejoicing is the most natural thing in the world. It's the most natural thing in the world. Let me just pause for a second. Guys, we believe, just put this out there, that Jesus is the real son of God, fully human and fully man, that he came willfully, left all of the beauty and the glory of heaven behind, came and allowed himself to be subjected to all of the evil of humanity, hang on a cross for our sin, and then resurrected so that we don't ever have to fear death again. This is, this is a cause for celebration. Like, we are people who celebration should mark us. Uh, I'm going to get excited. Have you ever seen someone whose, like, emotions or what they're doing seems, like, out of, like, congruence with the moment? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, that, like what's happening in the room is not what's happening with this person. So, and, um, so this, this Wednesday, Jen and I will celebrate 20 years of marriage. That's awesome. I love you. I'm so thankful for you. I get to do that. I have a microphone. You can't stop me. 20 years, awesome. But on our wedding day, everyone in the room was filled with joy and excitement, and it was like, everyone was like, it was just such an awesome day, except for Jen's sister. <laughs> At least so I thought. When Jen's sister came walking down, like as with the wedding party into the back of the room, she was full on shoulder heaving, crying, like weeping in the, in the moment. And I was like, oh my God. 
what have I done? Like, you know, I'm up there waiting for my beautiful bride to walk in. I see Jen's sister coming in. I'm like, she hates me. What is this moment? Like, it just didn't, it seemed out of proportion with the reality. Really, she was so full of joy, but on the outside, it just didn't look that way, you know? But like, you, there's a certain sort of thing that you would expect to be able to wear on the outside if the heart on the inside is joyful, right? And I think that, that what this is calling us to and what this is calling them to was that their celebration should match the reality of God. That their joy should match the reality of what was true. And what was true is God had delivered his people over and over and over again. There's specific portions of scripture that, that, set, that promise the people, if you will humble yourself and pray, I will return you back to your homeland. I will do it. And so now here they are in their homeland and it should be going, yeah, go figure. Kind of like Crystal, like God actually answers to prayer, you know? Like, so celebration and joy should be the, be the default position of these people and it should be ours. You see, when we truly discover who God is, and you discover who you are in him, you will discover that God is a joyful God and you are intended to be a joyful person. It's a part of the character of God. Joy is. And celebration is fitting for who he is. Uh, there's this book that, uh, and there's one chapter, this, the whole book is worth this one chapter. It's called Beautiful Resistance by a guy, uh, by a guy named John Tyson. And he's got this, uh, this, a few, I'm going to read from this one time and then uh, here now and this a little bit. He's talking about the need for celebration in a cynical world. And here's what he says. What do you think God is like? If we get this answer wrong, we will sow seeds of cynicism in our life. When we view God as angry or retributive, it will lead us to a cynical view of life. When we believe he is passive, it will lead us again to cynicism. So what do you think? Is God happy? Is God in a good mood? Is God filled with joy? If your answer is no to those questions, then you won't see those things being essential to who we need and how we need to be as followers of Christ. But do we serve a joyful God? But we do serve a joyful God. And that should make all the difference in the world. Consider these words from John Ortberg. We will not understand God until we understand this about him, God is the happiest being in the universe. God also knows sorrow. Jesus remembered among, is remembered, among other things, as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. But the sorrow of God, like the anger of God, is temporary response to a fallen world. That sorrow will be banished forever from his heart on the day the world is set right. Joy is God's basic character. Joy is his eternal destiny. God is the happiest being in the universe. Do you believe that? Because if you do, if you believe you were created in the image of God to represent him in the world, then it's important that you mirror this reality in your life. Yeah. Woo! That is, that's some good stuff right there. This is it's the very character of God. God is in a good mood. He's in a good mood. Why is this so important? Nehemiah that says here in 7 verse 10, Nehemiah said, Go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some, send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is holy to our Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. 
That's like one of the most quoted verses, I think, in the Christian world. It's like all over the place. The joy of the Lord is your strength. I love that. Joy of the Lord. The word strength is the Hebrew word ma'oz. Everyone say ma'oz. Now I want you to say it a little bit differently because the word strength here is actually not something just like I'm a strong person. It actually is the word for a mighty fortress, an impenetrable wall for a place of refuge that no one can get into. So it's not just ma'oz, it's ma'oz. This is like a warfare word. That's awesome to me. Like that, that, that God, that the joy of the Lord is like a refuge that can create an impenetrable wall in my heart that actually produces strength in me that's beyond my ability. It's something beyond me. I'm not that strong, but God is. My joy isn't that great, but his joy is. I love this. It's, it's actually the word used oftentimes for a stronghold, a place where people can't get through. The joy of the Lord is somehow like impenetrable forces in our life. And it's interesting, this joy and this, uh, this connection here between joy and strength, um, it's, it's not just a feeling of joy, not just a passive, f- passive feeling, but it's a stronghold. And it, and it doesn't quite spell it out here how these things are, are, are connected, but I don't think it's hard for us to connect the dots. See, because when you discover who God is, when you really truly discover who God is, it's, it can encourage your heart and produce joy even if the circumstances in your life seem like circumstances where you should not have joy. Think about Psalm 27. God prepares a what? You guys know this. What does God prepare before you? A table in the presence of whom? Your enemies. God prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. I don't know about you, But if I had my enemies surrounding me, that would not be a place where I would normally be ready to have a feast. I would be like, but God, all the enemies, what are you going to do about these people and you want me to have a party? But here, David, the psalmist, the poet saying, I have prepared a feast before you in the middle of your foes. That doesn't make any sense unless you trusted the one who actually prepared the feast, right? Like, if God is so good and so strong and so powerful, then in the middle of all of those kinds of things, we can feast in the middle of our foes. We can. It doesn't make any sense to do that unless God. It doesn't make any sense. Again, we're not talking about denying reality. I'm going to be really, really clear here. We're not talking about the denying the reality of hardship and difficulty and things that are hard. It's not, reali- it's not d- denying the reality of things that, um, that, we, that are beyond our ability to control, but it's saying the, grea- the greater reality is, even if it's bad now, God will make it right. Like, I-, I can live with this confidence in this life that God is in control and he will make it right. He will redeem and renew all things. So yeah, it doesn't make any sense. But if God is in control, then we can celebrate. And we don't have to wait until to experience joy until the circumstances align. If God says, look, there's a feast here, then it means he wants you to focus on the feast and not your foes. What we're talking about here is not situational joy, it's not circumstantial joy, but joy that's rooted in a revelation of the character, acts, and promises of God. Not situational joy, not circumstantial joy, but joy that's rooted in the revelation 
and the character and the promises of God. Again, joy not in denial of our circumstances, but actually in defiance of our circumstances. Not denial of our circumstances, but defiance of our circumstances. God, I know somehow you'll get the glory here. I know somehow you will redeem the wreck of this story. I know somehow one day I will see you again face to face. One day we will rejoice and there will be no more tears. I just read right before I came out, I was reading in Isaiah, how there will never be a thought to the harm and the hardship when God restores all things to what happened here on this earth. That's, oh man, that makes me happy. I don't know about you. A billion years from now is still not eternity. But a billion years from now, I will not be thinking about how hard it was on earth. I will be thinking about the good things in the new heaven and the new earth that God is creating a billion years from now. What's more true? The things that are hard right now or the thing that I will be celebrating a billion years from now? I'm going to the thing I'm celebrating for a billion years from now. I realize this is crazy. This can, this, is only, this can only be true if you're really convinced that God is real and that he is good. Without that, this is like, this is a house of cards that's going to fall down. That's not to say there isn't a time for grieving and sorrow. The scripture is really, really clear that God is near to the brokenhearted and close to all those who are crushed by spirit. Jesus wept. Jesus, it says, was deeply disturbed in his spirit at certain times. He grieves over the loss. He weeps over, uh, over people. He has he moved himself. He, he's brought a poor to extreme sorrow in his life. Remember, he's fully human in every way. But yet somehow the joy that's set before him keeps him going and keeps him moving through those circumstances. So again, we're not, we're not denying reality. We're just anchoring ourselves to a better reality. Have you ever thought, this is an interesting little thought experiment, how depressed you would be if you were God? Everyone who you have ever created has turned their back on you in some way. Billions upon billions upon billions of people have rejected you. That's, that's true of God. That's true of the heart of God. God knows rejection more than you will ever know rejection. He knows heartache and sorrow more than you will ever know it. God has provided incredible things for all of creation since the beginning of creation, yet people worship all other kinds of things and don't give him gratitude. Like I just think of a parent, like when my kids don't say thank you when I buy him something, how much that bugs me. Like, you know, sorry, Chloe, it's okay, I love you. <laughs> like, now multiply that times billions. That's what the heart of God, who is moved by how his people respond to him, goes through every day. But somehow, the person who should be the most grieved, the most sorrow, is the most joyful, loving, and kind being on the planet. And guess what? You are made in his image. So if it's true of God, it can be true of you. You also, if you're a follower of Jesus, have his spirit inside of you. And the fruit of the Spirit that can produce joy in your life. And so the joy that is God's strength is also the joy in your life that can produce strength in your life as well. I think you get the point. So what's the application? Well, they do it right here in the passage. Nehemiah basically says, look, 
since God has done all these things, and we've just heard the law, like, and you should be having this joyful kind of response, here's what I want you to do to practice joy. Go throw parties. Go and get the best meat and the best drink and go and find people who don't have anything and go throw a party. That's literally what Nehemiah tells them to do. Let's go and have an awesome feast. Go sing, go dance, go have a good time. Feast in the very presence of God. I bet, I'm just going to bet, that if you've been around church for a long time, you probably haven't heard too many messages where the application was, go and throw parties, right? I, mean, I'm, I haven't heard that a whole lot, but that's exactly what here, that Nehemiah is the leader, he's the governor, he's the ruler over these people, and he's like, here's what you should do. You should go and throw a party, not a solemn assembly where we're all sad. Like, we just, we just heard what God did. Here's what we should do. Stop your weeping and mourning and go party. Like, take all the stuff that you've been putting in reserve and bring it all out. The best cow over there, bring it out. Let's get them. Let's eat them. Yeah? Uh, yes, Lord. Go, it's time to have a good time. Well, one of the reasons why we don't hear this message or this application a whole lot in the church world is because the world, uh, outside of those who are followers of Jesus, parties too much, and too often times it's not holy. It's not pleasing to God. And that kind of joy is fleeting, and it doesn't produce strength. It produces weakness. It produces addictions. It produces an escaping from reality rather than anchoring ourselves in reality. So these are not parties for, that are like, hey, everyone, go get trashed and forget your worries and your sorrows. This is the God of heaven is in charge of everything and he loves you and he blesses you. He's provided everything. Go, like, now go and have it. Go and enjoy it. Eat and feast before the Lord. That kind of joy that, that the world pursues is fleeting and leaves you feeling empty. And my guess is many of you in your room know what I'm talking about. I have experienced that. There was a period of time because I wanted to walk away from my cynicism. I didn't want that anymore. I wanted to be the kind of person that just had a good time all the time. And in my absolute, one of my worst moments where I was being an absolute fool with my behavior, I felt God, the gentle voice of God, just like kind of tap me on the shoulder and say, is this who I really made you to be? And in that moment, man, my world unraveled. Because I thought that I was having fun. I thought that I was having a good time. I thought I was pursuing things that make me feel good. But in that moment, I realized just how empty I was. And so a lot of times in the church world, we're afraid of that. Like we don't know how to, we don't know how to, we don't have to celebrate well. And so we don't preach these kinds of messages very well because we don't want people to run into the ditches like I ran into. You see what I mean? Are you guys okay? Yeah? Like, so, so, so we, don't, we don't do that. Even here in our community, in our own town, like Wakanda and Island Lake area, uh, we live in a town that was actually founded as an escape from. It's a resort community. People from Chicago left Chicago to go up and live a leisure life by the lake in the summertime. And that's, in some ways, good. God loves Sabbath. He loves rest. He loves us to enjoy the goodness of creation. Like, all, I don't know if you've been hearing what I've been saying so far, like, but, but that's all really good. But that has kind of had an unhealthy like seed in our community where we don't know how to celebrate in the proper ways and in godly ways. And that's a distortion of God's intent. See, we're meant to celebrate the goodness of God 
with genuine laughter and dancing and feasting, not to escape reality, but to embrace the ultimate reality of God's presence. Not to escape reality, but to embrace the ultimate reality, God's presence. God, the joyful God, dwelling among his joyful people, these are the parties that we're meant to throw in celebration of God's goodness. And by the way, this isn't an Old Testament reality. This is a New Testament reality too. If you were to look at the life of Jesus and you were to take out the parts where Jesus talks about feasting or banquets or parties, you would have a very, very tiny four gospels. The first miracle that Jesus does, where's it at? Wedding, water to wine, boom. Jesus on the scene, guess what I love, good party. Jesus talks the, the, the parable, the prodigal son. What happens when the prodigal comes home? Father throws a party. When Jesus talks about the disciples and gives them a metaphor for how they're going out into the world and welcoming them back home, the, the metaphor he uses is of a banquet or a wedding feast. Go and tell people to come home. And guess what? If people don't come, go and find other people and get them to come. When Jesus calls his disciple Matthew, what happens? There's a party at Matthew's house, the tax collector, the, the sinful person, right? Jesus does this so much that all the people, all the religious people around him are mad at him. They're like, you drink too much and you eat too much, Jesus. This is craziness. Jesus specifically tells his disciples and people like, look, hey, when you do throw a party, I like that. The, like the expectation is you will throw a feast. You will throw a celebration. He tells them when you do, you should invite not the people that are closest to you, but go and find people who don't have anything. Invite them to your party. Where have I heard that before? Right here in Nehemiah. Like a lot of times we think Jesus is a completely different person than the Old Testament. It's, he's not. He's just saying like, you've, this is already here. Nehemiah said, go find people who don't have anything for a feast and invite them to your party. Jesus is saying, go find people who don't have enough to their party and invite them to your party. He's God. He's really good. Like he, he, he knows what he's doing. So if you were to take away this feasting and this celebration out of our, out of our Bibles, out of the life of Jesus, like we wouldn't have a whole lot left. Why is that the case? Because joy demands a celebration. Joy demands a celebration. We can't just feel joy. We're meant to have an outward expression of joy. It's, it's okay to have moments where I feel joy and don't express it, but it, those are meant to be moments, not my default position. See, celebrations produce joy. I'm sorry, let me back up. Joy produces celebration. It's hard because uh, these things are, there's a tension here. Because sometimes we don't want to celebrate until we feel joy. Right? Anyone else feel that way? Like, I don't, it's hard to celebrate when you don't feel it. Right? But here's what we know, is that, that when you genuinely feel joy, you will celebrate. But I also know that when you choose to celebrate, joy is something that comes along for the ride. And not at a, not at a fake way. Let me give you an example. Have you ever been at a wedding? And a wedding is a, is, a, is a joyful occasion. It's an occasion where people are there and they're having a good time and you're looking out at the dance floor and people are dancing and there is an expression of joy and celebration, right? And, and you can see those people there are having a really good time. 
and you feel yourself going, man, I kind of want to, kind of want to have a good time too. Like, but I'm, I'm not, I just don't quite have it. And then you can find, uh, this is my dance moves right here, by the way. This is how I dance. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's all I got. That's it. But then you see, you're like, you find yourself, like, and you nudge your, your buddy, maybe your wife that's with you, whoever, like, hey, let's go. And all of a sudden, you go out on the dance floor. And like, all of a sudden, you find yourself just caught up in the joy of the moment. Like, not because you felt joy necessarily sitting down, but because you saw something that you wanted to be a part of. And there's something that happens when you get out on the dance floor and you start dancing with other people and your favorite song is on and everyone's just singing and it just produces something inside of you. Something that maybe you weren't feeling until you get out on the dance floor, right? And I feel like what God is calling us to is not just to be people who wait until we feel it, but to get out on the doggone dance floor right now. Like, let's go party. And then let that produce joy and celebration in our lives as we step into the things that God already has for us. There's a feast in front of you already. Because joy not only demands a celebration, celebration produces joy. So think about this. They have this response as, as they hear the word of God that's meant to produce joy. And the application is like, okay, now go and reproduce this. Go into your homes. Go in and, 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 and have more feasts. Go and celebrate this goodness of God on your own in smaller pockets of people. That God is faithful, that he's really, really good. Celebrate his goodness and his faithfulness. This is what Nehemiah would be telling the people to do. And, their, and what would happen is their joy would increase. Friends, like, I think this is what God is calling us to do as a church family. To open up our homes and our dinner tables to celebrate the goodness of God. If you're not sure what that look, might look like, let me just read a little bit more from this, this book here. This is John Tyson talking about what does a celebration like this look like. I was at one of these redemption celebrations with a group of friends not long ago. A crew of us from the city were gathered around a table, reveling in all God has done. Person by person, we opened up our hearts and shared about God's goodness. We laughed until we hurt, we wept tears of gratitude, and ate until we were content. People shared freedom from sexual addiction, deliverance from judgmental spirit, uh, reconciled relationships with family, promotions at work, fresh hope, and strained marriages. At the end of the meal, we raised our glasses and yelled, to the king and to the kingdom. The whole restaurant turned around for a second, drawn into the spirit of the moment. That would be an odd scene, right? Later, the server who had caught snippets of our story said to me, that was the most hopeful thing I have ever encountered in years, and I don't even believe in God. Thank you. That's the power of celebration, guys. Celebration, joyful celebration that has the ability to produce hope in people, right? We, we don't have to preach at the world a message of condemnation. Like, we, we don't have to do that. But what we can do is say, gosh, I have this life with Jesus that like, yeah, it's not easy, but I have this hopeful, joyful defiance. And I want you to experience that too. And so we can go out into the world and celebrate. Like, this should be a part of our culture, like, this should be a part of, of, of who we are. So if you think about, like, um, when a, if you've got, like, families from another culture that move into a place, have you ever noticed how they group together and they kind of reform their culture in the new place where they live? You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, you find people, right? And all of a sudden, like, there will be restaurants that will pop up. 
Like that was the, the ethnicity of the food, uh, of the, uh, the food of the ethnicity, right? Or you'll find grocery stores that will pop up that will be here. And all of a sudden all, you have this like, oh, you, rec- you recognize, oh, there's this group of people here from that country or that speak that language. You see that like what should happen with us is we should re- recognize this joyful culture of the kingdom of God. Wherever we are, people should go, oh, those people are different. There's something about them and it should be mark us on the way that we celebrate in the way that we host parties, in the way that we tell the stories of God, we should be marked out different because we are citizens of a kingdom that is full of joy. The world rallies around all kinds of things that don't matter very much, and it produces temporary fleeting joy. They don't produce the joy of the Lord that is our strength. So why not do something different? Why not throw some parties and have some celebrations Why not have some dinner parties in our backyard or in your home or at a restaurant where we do these kinds of things like John Tyson was talking about, where we share testimonies of the ways that God has worked. You guys have stories in this room. Like, you you know the goodness of God, right? So why not throw some parties that people will remember for eternity? Not, Not because of how great the food was, although that would be good. Not, not because of how great a host you are in the party, although that's, that's perfectly fine, but because I heard the stories of God at that party. See, when the people of God celebrate like heaven, it has the potential to produce heaven on earth. Now, how do you do that? Well, I'm not going to tell you how to throw a party. <laughs> you got to figure that out. It's different for everybody. What works for somebody is not, is not going to work for another group of people in this room. So don't assume that you have to have a, that you can't throw a party, a, th- a celebration, and that you have to have alcohol because you don't. Or that you have to have the best food in the world because you don't. Or that, that you have to have a really nice house because you don't. These are people who are just getting together with other people and having fun and telling the stories of God. That's all we need to do. You figure out what that looks like. For some of you, that's going to look like, because you're amazing cooks, it's going to like look like bringing out the best food, right? And for, for some of you, that's going to look like setting a beautiful table, man. I, I've had the experience of, of um, uh, being well cared for as a pastor on a few occasions where a beautiful table was set, and it, man, it just, it just made me feel so special. Like, it just made me feel so honored. And you have the ability to offer that to other people, but you don't have to do that. Like, I just release the gift of hospitality in our church family to run and go with it. Whatever you've got, however you have to do it, don't let anything stop you from declaring the goodness of God. Don't let anything stop you from celebrating the way that God has designed you and uniquely designed you to to celebrate. So whatever you have to do, figure it out. Grow in conscious awareness of God's presence. Here I say, just make Jesus the center. So anything that's going to take, take away from Jesus being the center of it, don't do it. The world has enough of that. We don't need to do that. And you can take these parties mobile, by the way. There's a few years ago where uh, a few of our folks were at one of the local restaurants in town, and they were at, um, uh, uh, they were at a trivia night, and like the, the, the bartender was like, hey, something's different about you guys. What is it? I'm, short, I'm telling the story very shorthand. But when you celebrate and you love one another the way Christ has called us to love one another and be in the world, it looks different. It looks different. It creates a curiosity. And that's what God's calling us to. What do you guys think? You ready to throw some celebrations and some parties? Yeah.
So, I, so here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to release you and commission you to do it. And I'm going to trust that God's big enough and, and, and he's going to guide you and we don't need to tell you how to do it and we don't need to give you a sign-up sheet and we don't need to give you rules for how to do it and not do it. Trust the Holy Spirit, lean into God's word and have a good time and share his glory. Go in Jesus' name, amen? Go, let's do this thing. It's on.